This episode is sponsored by this Naked Mind companion app. Wait, this Naked Mind has an app? Yes, we do. And I am so excited to tell you about it. This Naked Mind companion app is our brand new app where we've included all-in-one access to over 700 videos with answers to all your burning questions, our signature 30-day alcohol experiment, our incredible global community, and so much more. All in one convenient place. It's private, off social media, and free. This Naked Mind companion app is available in the App Store, on Google Play, and online at thisnakedmindapp.com. Hi, this is Annie, and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Bill. Hi, Bill. How are you? How are you doing, Annie? So good. So good to see you. So, um, yeah, why don't I'm so excited to hear your story. Why don't you start from the very beginning? Where did where did it all start for you with alcohol? It all started on July 1st, 1965, uh, the day <laughs> I was born. Um, so I was a difficult birth, and um, my uh, baby pictures I got a pointed head and a and a black eye and um so you know I I don't really have any memories of that but when I look back um as I became alcohol free and I look back on my life and you know some of my first experiences as a human being was traumatic was was violent and um and it goes on from there so um, about uh, maybe three or four months after um, I was born, my mother had postpartum depression. And back in 1965, they didn't have anything for that. They didn't have medication and they didn't have um, therapy. So um, she was institutionalized and um, received electric shock therapy. And I think she was in for about six months. So my my first memories as as a child was with my grandmother holding me coming into my crib and and I rem I just remember her vividly um, looking down on me and I was knew that wasn't my mother but it was my grandmother so I you know I still felt safe but I knew something was up and and with that came a lot of anger from my mom um, she from from what I gather she came back to the home quite angry and and she grew up with her own. Um, traumatic events and, a, and an absent alcoholic father and 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 all of that but she came back a, a much more difficult person and and my father didn't know what to do about the situation so basically you didn't do anything at all and and um, all three of us I have two older sisters we kind of grew up in a very um, abusive home and um, full of rage and anger and and obviously you know that took a toll on itself, on us. Moving forward, and, and the reason I'm going through this is so you have an understanding of why I drank. I'm a traumatic drinker. I'm not a, I didn't get into this, going out with friends and having a good time and they get caught up in, I drank to stop feeling bad. I drank to feel better. Um, so, you know, I have my childhood and I'm eight, nine years old. And all of a sudden, you know, I, and I didn't remember this until I was 40s, but the neighbor's um, father got a hold of me and did what he did. And um, obviously that affected my reality and growing up. And although I don't remember um, any threats of violence or anything like that, I just, I remember that it happened. And obviously it left a mark on me growing up even further, getting into the fourth grade, the hierarchy began. And all of my friends that I had in school, we kind of shifted. 
and people became popular and people became unpopular. And unfortunately, I became the unpopular kid. And um, basically, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to purse my words, but I was the class faggot. Mm. And, you know, at, at, in the fourth grade, I'm like nine, maybe 10 years old. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that is. I didn't know I was gay. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I just was bullied. And um, from fourth to 12th grade, through all of school, the bullying was daily and it was brutal. Um, it was mostly mentally and emotionally, but there, there were many days in which I was uh, physically hurt or things were thrown at me. So when I got into high school, still doing my best, carrying all this baggage with me, abandonment, um, carrying obviously trauma, being bullied, not knowing where I fit in. Um, my best friend at the time was also the other class faggot. Um, and, you know, he started smoking, so I started smoking. And he started drinking with the parting friends. And those are the people who kind of took me in. And so I started drinking. And all I drank, the reason that I drank was to stop the anger inside me. The reason that I drank was to stop the pain and the trauma. You know, I, I, it's, it's a difficult thing to bring up. And, and I don't talk about this often. But when I see these, these kids who are bullied so badly that they have thoughts of violence, of wanting to take a gun to school and kill the people who are bullying them into the ground. I get it. I get it. There's, there's no other way to stop that than to try and, and want to erase it. And I, and I have those memories of not knowing what else to do but to be violent. And obviously, I, I didn't do anything like that. But I took the violence out on myself, right? Mm -hmm. um, I remember going out in high school to the, uh, to the um, parking lot, the senior parking lot, because, you know, the seniors always had their own parking lot and taking your 50 cents out there and getting cross tops in 2020s because, you know, it, it was only caffeine pills, but it was speed to us and it was a bad thing to do. And so we did it to buck the system and my friends did it. And so here I am walking around school high on, on loads of caffeine. Um, and then after school, we would go off and have a drink someplace. And it was just, it was a pretty rough time for me. Um, obviously I made it. I got through, I graduated. Um, parents really didn't understand while I was, why I was a, a C student, but I understood why I was a C student. I, I probably had, I don't know how many times I put my finger down my throat um, to throw up, to show my father that I was sick. So I didn't have to go to school. Mm. So I graduated. I don't know what I'm going to do. I just, you know, mom's like, well, um, until you can find out what you want to do, why don't you go to community college? And I'd already had all this, you know, I didn't want to be in school. I didn't want to be in high school. I had too many markers in my system that says that school is bad. And so I tried one year at community college, community college, and it was, it was absolutely dreadful. I was drunk almost every night of the week. Um, I remember taking a piano final, um, that morning I had DTs and my sister gave me a Valium and I practically passed out a keyboard trying, trying to play a piano lesson. And, you know, I, I didn't see this as, as anything of a problem because I would recover the next day. And when you're young, 
you recover pretty easily. And I don't remember having a hangover until I was in my 30s or so. So um, I decided to get into hairdressing because I had to do something. I had, I had to do something to uh, make a means of a living for myself. And um, we all know that, well, we don't know. I mean, things are changing these days, but that back then the, the hairdressing group, we were partiers, right? We'd go to class and then we'd go out for drinks after class. And, and I spent all my savings and everything on alcohol. Um, it's just, just kind of funny how much, I'm surprised I even passed hairdressing school, but I did, right? I'm trying to put all this together. Um, You're doing awesome. Thank you. So um, going going back to 18, um, bef you know, as I was graduating and finally realizing that what I was feeling inside was was being a homosexual. I had, I had grown up with two sisters and I and I always had a big brother complex. I always wanted a big brother to guide me and mold me because my father was emotionally unavailable. Um, he was doing his best to provide for the family, didn't know what to do with my mother. And when he found out that I was gay, I got a 10 page letter um, with scripture wow. and calling me an abomination and calling my behavior abomination. Um, I regret, I don't regret not saving that letter, but um, sometimes you wanna go back and you want to Am I interpreting that letter the correct way now as an adult that I did back then? And back then it was absolutely traumatizing that my father distanced himself from me even further. Um, so turning 18, I learn about sex. And I learn about sex as attention and validation from the man who did what he did to me when he was younger. Like I remember it wasn't a violent or it wasn't a threatening or a hurtful act. I reacted to it because he gave me love and attention that I wasn't getting at home. Right? Mm -hmm. So I'm 18, I'm getting out of high school. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm feeling absolutely lonely and um, no one to talk to. It, it, back in the 80s, we didn't have role models that we do now. Um, the gentleman before us had it worse than I did. Every generation in my community makes it better for the next generation to come, right? But I didn't have that. I didn't have anybody to tell me that um, there was nothing wrong with me. I didn't have anybody to tell me that it was okay to stand in the light of myself and to be myself. Um, so what did I do? I fucked every guy I possibly get my hands on. Anybody who welcomed me into their environment, I did with them what I, what I could get away with because it validated me. It made me feel good. It made me feel like a human being. And, I, and obviously at the time, I didn't understand what love was. Mm -hmm. and, but that was my association with love, was the tension. If you are going to see with me going to do that means that I and um not thing to do made it through um had my fair share of STDs um I don't know how I got through without being HIV positive but here I am and um every night almost every night you know I'd be out drinking and driving I had my 
um, old English 800 tall boys had about four of them in my truck and I'd go cruising. Abs that, you know, you look back on it and, and a lot of us who have these stories look back and it's like, how did I get away with that? Why was I doing that? But I did it, right? I did it. Um, and my early adult life was just filled with mistakes. It was filled with filling my life with things and spending my money on things that meant nothing to me, trying to fill these voids with money that I didn't even have. I've, I'm bankrupt twice in my life, trying to feel love, mm -hmm. trying to feel welcome. Um, so, you know, time goes by and I, I, I stop being a hairdresser and I get into office work and then my career in human resources flourishes. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm still carrying all this with me. Um, I'm still drinking. Mom dies. She died about 25 or so years ago. And I decided that I would like to try out crystal methamphetamine. So about mom died in August, November after my mother died was my first experience on crystal, on meth. And um, two years of absolute debauchery, absolute debauchery. Do, I was doing things that um, I wouldn't have normally done if I wasn't under the influence of something. And that's where I found AA. Um, two, uh, two years was absolutely fabulous. And um, then the next two years were probably, you know, not the most miserable of my life, but I sure was miserable anyway. Um, suicidal ideation every day. Back then we called it rumination. Um, not wanting to be here, trying to make the best of, of a difficult situation, feeling mediocre in my life. Um, I made some great friends. People who I haven't seen in 20 years still remember me. I, I leave an impression, but inside I was just empty, just fucking empty. And so um got into AA because I didn't know what else to do. I I was I was dabbling in spirituality for a while. You know, I um I read the Seth books and I, you know, I I pretended to be psychic for a while and I went to all these. Um, groups and this and that. And, and because I was still drinking, nothing fit. When AIDS came out and everybody was writing affirmations, Louise Hay writing affirmations, I was writing affirmations until I was blue in the face, but nothing was taken. Nothing was taken. I, I would write, I love myself. And I didn't feel it. And I would write it 30 times a day for three weeks and it never took. Mm -hmm you know, as an adult and as, as a um, alcohol-free adult, I, I understand the cognitive dissonance in that, right? You get that. Um, so I went into AA and um, I stayed in for about three months. I traveled the room for about three months and it didn't feel right to me. I didn't resonate with the tenants nor the people. I, I would go into these rooms and they were somber. And they and everybody had their head down, and I I didn't know how to react to that, but it didn't feel like it was going to lift me up out of the problem that I was in. So, um, I decided to do it myself. Right, it's going to get off crystal meth myself. 
I was still smoking, but I was going to get off crystal meth. So I picked up a course in miracles and mm -hmm. I studied it for a while. Um, and um, I decided to do the 365 day workbook. And I figured that if I had something else to concentrate on, um, I would get through the withdrawal symptoms. And, and at the time, I, I don't know if it's still the same, but the understanding was um, meth withdrawals came every three months. And so you would have a craving at three months, and then you would have a craving at nine months, and then you would have a cra craving at nine, 10, and 12 months. And once you got to the year, the cravings actually got, got a lot better. And once you got to 18 months, the story was that your body finally completed the cellular cycle and the meth was out of your system. So I did 365 days and um, was successful, never had a, a slip or anything like that. But AA, um, I didn't like the terminology. I didn't want to be an addict. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to be defective, right? Yeah. So I get off meth. I'm still sexually active, sexually abusive. I'm still drinking. Two, year, two years later, I quit smoking. My HR career is doing pretty good, right? So in 2008, I was, you know, for not having a college degree and barely getting through high school, um, I was making about 100K a year. And that was, that was with bonus. Um, and the Great Recession hit. So, excuse me, I'm still getting over a cold. So the Great Recession hits. I lose my job. Um, I lose my apartment. Um, and and um, Prop 8 came out. And my father voted yes to um, not allow me to marry. And at the time, I didn't have I didn't have the wherewithal to understand what love was. But my father and I remember he was laughing about it, like he got the upper hand. Mm. And I and I just got noticed that I'd lost my job. And it, it was with Long's Drugs. If anybody knows Long's Drugs um, on the West Coast, probably one of the one of the, one of the best companies I've worked for. Um, very much employee oriented. And so I told him to fuck off. I literally told my father to fuck off, and I didn't talk to my family for seven years. Um, I lost my health insurance, paid for as much cobra as I could, and I ended up in the Palm Springs area because um, a guy I used to play with. <laughs> He had a bed, he had a spare bedroom. And um, none of my friends had had a bedroom for me. They had couches and I was offered a lot of opportunities for places to stay, but I knew my time was up. I knew what was happening and that I wasn't being, gonna be able to get a job. There were a lot of people more qualified than I was that were gonna get jobs before me. So um, I decided to move out to the Palm Springs area. And um, I, I found a doctor there under, um, what I had left of my health insurance. And he wrote me prescription for Prozac. And he said, as long as you are without insurance, I will keep writing the script for you. Mm. So I stayed on the script, but I was a mess. I was a mess. Um, still functioning, still drinking. And I didn't know what to do. Couldn't get a job, didn't know anybody. So I decided to start a house cleaning company, right? So I took the last thousand dollars and um, I invested in what was then pig pen house cleaning. And that kept me off the streets, right? 
So I'm feeling weak and I'm feeling helpless and hopeless, but I still am able to keep myself afloat. And my first employee, his name was Everett. I, I have notes in front of me. I'm not even going by him. Everett was in a, a, a sober living home. And he put up with so much. But he was always this inspiration that um, if he can hold his stuff together, so can I. And I didn't, I didn't see my dependency, right? I only saw the grace that he gave me. Mm. And the times that I had one day I lost it and I closed up shop and I just downed two five-hour energy drinks and drove to Arizona because I couldn't deal with it anymore. And everybody thought that I would killed myself and or was gone. Nobody could find me. And I left my phone and I wasn't going to care about anything. And um, when I finally came to my senses and came back, he unconditionally accepted me. And I still love him to this day. Um, I remember he says, you're not my friend. Um, you're my employee. It takes a lot of time and exchange to build a friendship with me. And, but I'm here for you when you need me. And that meant everything to me. And he helped my business grow. And by the time I closed down the company, I was making a good $100,000 a year. So I went from $1,000, um, my last $1,000 to I netted $100,000 uh, $100, in, in sales, I guess you would call it sales. And, you know, I think that was a really great accomplishment. But I was still absolutely miserable. I was still a mental basket case. I was still overreactive and still felt underappreciated. And then I met my husband, right? So it was funny. This guy invited me up to do the Joshua Tree area. And he, and he said, um, I have a house in Joshua Tree. I'm only here a couple months um, every other month. And I would just like somebody to clean it in between those times. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't service Joshua Tree. It's an hour away. But he said, can you please come up? Because it's only going to be every two months, I promise. And you can charge me whatever you want. And I said, okay. So I came up. And the moment I walked in the door, we both had it. We both knew exactly who each other was. And I even said, um, you know, I don't know you, but I know you from someplace. And, and I don't know what this is, but this is really weird. And he kind of agreed. And, and we both had the understanding that we didn't run in the same circles back when I lived in, in South Orange County. And then six months later, we had our first date and because um, there was a lot of drama in between there. And um, actually, February, I think tomorrow, I'm going to open up my calendar real quick. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. It's either this week or next week is our 10 year anniversary of meeting. Wow, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. So 10 years. Anyway, um, so we have our first date and um, we're dating for a year and I see him every couple of weeks when he come out, comes out here or sometimes when I go out to Orange County and he was a drinker back then and he introduced me to Top Shelf Vodka and I'm like, holy shit, no hangovers. This is awesome. So, so I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, my husband has some money. We're going to drink top shelf and we're have, I hated vodka. Now I love vodka martinis. Oh, I love vodka martinis. And I felt so adult. And it was just, I romanticized that drink with the olives or I, or I, or I'd make the, um, 
the lemon rind ribbon just personal, you know, perfectly. So it sat in the, in the glass just right. And it always had to be ice cold. And I always liked the ice, the ice chips on top of my um, martini and still miserable, still forgive me to anybody else who deals with mental illness. I'm calling myself this. I was a nut job, absolute nut job. I remember the times that we'd be on the phone and I had had a really bad day and I had a um, bottle of wine and I always, I, I couldn't afford the vodka by myself. So I would go to fresh and easy and get a cheap dollar, cheap $9 bottle of wine. I could afford that nightly. And um, by the time we had our good night phone call, I was already drunk and just, I'm a loser. I'm this and that. I can't even run a business, so on and so forth. And he's just taking it in and still loving me and ended up moving, closing down the company because an employee was 15 minutes late and I lost it. And I said, fuck you all. I'm done. Closed out the, closed down the company, took care of my vacation properties before I left. And John said, come on over, right? Come live with me. Take some time. Get, get yourself back together. And then when you're ready, go get a job. And boy, every time he got home from work, there was a cheese pot with crackers and, and mart uh, martinis mixed every single fucking night. I don't think a night went by that we didn't drink. Um, so, you know, five months later, he gets laid off from his job. I'm freaking out because I haven't gotten a job yet. I don't, I haven't even gotten my resume together, how I'm going to do this. And he says, well, you know what? I've been with this company for 20 years. They're laying me off with a pension. I'm going to retire. Let's move back to Joshua Tree and we'll go camping and all that. And I said, okay, let's pour a drink. Um, oh, by the way, so when I moved to South Orange, South Orange County, the pain inside me was so bad. And I knew my father was going into his late 80s. And so I called my father and I reconciled and I called my, my, um, and I called my family and I reconciled. And if one has never experienced unconditional love, it's when your sister says, you only have to apologize once it's over and done with. Mm -hmm. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing else to apologize. I accept that we're going to move on. And I've never had to apologize since. Wow. And I have, and I have nephews and I have great nieces and nephews and I have my family back, right? But I'm still drinking. So my, anyway, few years go by, we moved back to Joshua Tree. It's going on 2020. Dad um, decides that it's time to go. And January um, 24th of 2020, he passes on. No cancer, no nothing died like a normal human being should die. He just left his body shut down and he left. And it was an absolutely amazing experience to watch this man just die like a normal human being. Mm -hmm. um, so I get, and so I'm, I'm drinking still. <laughs> um, I'm fighting with my husband, making up shit about nothing. And um, I get, in, I go back to my therapist I've been in therapy before, but I get with my therapist and she, um, the light's coming. So hold on, because the light is coming. Um, she introduces me to Kristen Neff's self-compassion. Bill, mm. think about how you're talking to yourself, right? Okay. So I, I, I read the book and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And I'm still in therapy. 
it's 2020, COVID hits. The family's like, thank goodness dad went before COVID because we wouldn't have been there for him, yada, yada, yada. I'm, I'm beginning to count my blessings because I'm beginning to talk to myself better. And Kristen talks about the eight-week MBSR course, um, mindfulness-based um, uh, uh, mindfulness stress reduction. So I decided that um, I would get into the MBSR program, and I read about John Kabat-Zinn and how he developed it back in the 70s in Massachusetts, and I'm on the East Coast, that's on the West Coast, and I thought, if I'm going to do this MBSR, I'm going to do it through University of Massachusetts MBSR program. So eight week course and um, oh wait I'm out of kink I'm out of uh, I'm out of sync so dad dies January I start drinking more I start drinking more um, John has rental properties he is gone weeks out of the time because he has a money pit that he's because he's a handyman and he's great with hammers and nails and all of that and he's out of the time and I'm at home drinking and I'm at home drinking. Costco bottles of Grey Goose. And we know how big those bottles get. Mm -hmm. And because I was so embarrassed about drinking so much while he was gone, I would go to whatever store that was local that was selling Grey Goose on sale because I, I wouldn't go and buy that little bottle at that price point. And I would fill the, the Costco bottle with the small, smaller bottle of Grey Goose. And so he wouldn't notice. And it turns out he never looked because he never thought I had a problem. But um, in April or May, after my father passed in 2020, we're in the middle of COVID. John, I have a problem. I have a problem. I can't stop drinking. I'm trying to stop drinking and I can't. And he said, talk to your doctor. And I didn't want to talk to my doctor. So I get on the internet and I uh, type up how to quit alcohol with being, without being an alcoholic, without AA. And Alan Carr's book came up. So I read Alan Carr's book and I'm like, you know, lights are going off all over the place. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is it. But I need help. I, I, I tried to do it by myself and I couldn't. So I get into a program through my health insurance and it's all AA based. And it was a 70 day program every single day online. And when I was done 70 days alcohol free and I decide that um, I can moderate. So um, I start drinking again. And I'm doing pretty good at moderating, right? But I'm still a mess inside because a lot of us who, who try to moderate are taking the whole day to figure out whether they're going to drink or not drink or how much am I going to drink this time so I can have more to drink the next night. And then I would pour my drink, right? And I'd finish it or I'd be this, this much left. And I'm like, oh my God, my alcohol's warm. So I go into the freezer, I get out the bottle and then I pour just a little in, just to, just to cool down the vodka. I'm like, oh, that's not enough. So I pour a little more and then I would pour myself another drink. That's what moderation was for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny. Um, so I get through the holidays, you know, no, 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 it's 2020. So um, going through 2021, I'm back if not full force drinking more than I did when I started moderating. And again, just absolutely miserable. Now, when I took the mindfulness course in, in 2020, um, that I, I thought it would help my, my dependency on alcohol. 
And I thought it would be this miracle cure for me, and it wasn't. But what it did do for me is it stopped my suicidal ideation. I haven't, I, I haven't ruminated suicide in, in two years now, right? Blessing that that's off my shoulder. Happy that it's off my shoulders, but I'm still miserable. So um, 2021 hits, I'm, I'm, you know, doing my best to get through life and, you know, spending money and need to do this and that. And I started making Christmas ornaments and I'm having a great time, but I'm still drinking. I'm still drinking top shelf. But what they don't tell you is top shelf just, it creeps up on you quicker than bottom shelf does, right? The hangovers in the beginning aren't, aren't as severe, but they build. And what I find is it took me longer to get to the point where I couldn't take it anymore because of top shelf. If I was drinking uh, a more, you know, a lower shelf, less filtered, I would probably feeling more sick and would have gotten into a program sooner. So anybody's listening to this, you're not doing yourself any service with top shelf. So um, October comes, um, no, the end of September, October comes around and I get on the internet again. I have a problem. I'm not talking to my husband about it. How can I quit drinking without being an alcoholic? I didn't want to go to AA. I didn't want to be a defect. I didn't, I, I had literally become fairly religious atheist, didn't want to have a higher power. I didn't want to be powerless. And your book came up right on Amazon. Your book came up. And so I read it and I thought, okay, well, this is like Alan Carr but with love, and this is like Alan Carr, but with compassion, and this is Alan Carr with science, but it's a great big hug. It's, it is, it embraced me. And I said, I need me more of this. This is what I'm looking for. So I find your website and I do the alcohol experiment. And, and I'm having day one after day one after day one. and. Um, I'm like, fuck, what do I do? This isn't working. So, um, end of October, you had a, um, uh, one hour presentation on the path. I said, I'm going to listen to what she has to say. And I've seen your videos and I've already fallen in love with you. You're, 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 you're just, you are a rock star to me. And, um, 10 minutes after you gave your presentation, I, Paid in full and was in the path. Awesome. What you have is unlike anything that I've ever experienced. Um, the coaches were amazing. The pause, the pause. I kept thinking the pause was going to fuck me up, but it didn't. The 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 um the what is it? I don't know what the word you used. But it didn't seem logical to be in the pause and to drink while I'm while I'm um, absorbing this information. And and Coach Pam, who I love, and all of the coaches said, just just trust the process. And I'm getting to know some of the most beautiful people I've ever met. And um, December twenty seventh. 2021 was my first day one. And I'd had a number of day ones before that while in the pause and, and coach Pam had said, just stop. You're, you're running yourself into the ground, trying to stop drinking alcohol. 
listen to the content, participate. And somebody had asked, what is the success rate? And Pam says, we don't know the success rate. But what I've seen is the people who succeed are the ones who participate. So I participated. And if you talk to anybody else in my path, I'm a goddamn treasure. I never held back. Never held back. Love that. I trusted these people with almost every aspect of my life. The good, the bad. When I was hurting, I brought it. And they gave me love. And when I was struggling, I brought it. And they and the coaches helped me shift my perception, helped me shift, um, you know, my thinking. I remember doing a ladder the, the, in the middle of December because I was going to pick my day one. And I was doing a ladder on how to be go, become um, dependent. I can't quit drinking too. I'm joyfully living alcohol-free. And the path helped me and the people in the path and the coaches helped me develop my ladder. So when I got to living alcohol-free, it was a week before my day one. And I'm on Sunday morning with Coach Tabin you know, and I'm, and I'm sharing, she says, she says, Bill, in her, in her British accent, because it's so wonderful. I think you're just about ready. Sounds like you're ready. And um, everybody in the group is just, just cheering for me. And a week goes by, and I'm still drinking. John doesn't know what to do with any of this, right? Um, he is trusting me in my process. I'm almost done. Oh my God, long story. I don't want to go over. No, this is great. Okay, here we go. The Friday before Christmas weekend, I, I wasn't going to drink. The 24th, and his kids were coming that weekend. John has adult kids from a prior marriage. And I was going to quit. And I was going to make this um, Christmas, an alcohol-free Christmas. And I was in such a state of withdrawal that I don't remember what my husband said. And um, it, tr it, tr it triggered me. And I took off my ring, I placed it on the table, and I said, I want a divorce. I don't even remember what he said. And I know it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't mean. Um, I left the house, Christmas Eve, left the house. I went down to the Palm Springs area and got a hotel room and um, uh, liquor mart um, in the area off a uh, seedy street with no lights, <laughs> street lights. The only lights on the street was around the, the liquor store and got my bottle and got drunk and um, woke up the next morning, didn't have any place to go and have a place to go. So I went home and I, and I, and I walked in the house and I said, um, I said, I don't have any place to go. And he said, well, you can stay here as long as you want. Sorry. And um, I decided to make that Christmas the best Christmas I could going through withdrawals. Um, I drank about a half as much as I could have 
Um, but as we both know, is even if you, you know, if, if you're going through withdrawals and you have a little bit of alcohol, it turns out it looks like a lot of alcohol. It tends to get you more drunk, so on and so forth. And so the 27th, um, the, the kids left on the, the kids came on the 25th. They left on the 27th and the 27th was my day one. The 27th was my wedding anniversary. And I said, that's it. I said, I, I didn't want to live like this anymore. Um, and I dug into acts and I dug into the path and I dug into wanting to be happy because, um, going through the path, it has less to do about alcohol than it has to do about being happy. It, it has less to do about alcohol than reclaiming my fucking birthright to be happy, yeah. to be loved, to love, right? Um, and my husband stood through all of this. He, he would by my side through all of this. And I went through, you know, um, the path, giving him my all, loving everybody who's, who's, who's having day ones or having day 25s and then going back to day ones. And I'm holding on for dear life during withdrawals. And once withdrawals are over, I find myself st still dealing with mental illness because Russia starts invading Ukraine and I'm internalizing all this. And Pam is... Pam is telling me, hold on, go talk to your doc. If you if you need to get change your medication for the time being, change your medication for the time being. But what's happening is your body is changing. Your body is healing. Your brain is healing. And I trusted her. And I trusted Coach Tabin. I trusted Coach Ginny and Coach Onowa. And those, those were the ones that whose um, Zooms I made the most. And I got better. I started feeling the joy of life. I started feeling alive again. And I am eternally grateful to this naked vine for, for um, helping me turn my thoughts around. But I didn't know that alcohol was just highly filtered ethanol, gasoline. I didn't know that. I didn't know a lot of things in there that you that that you put out through scientific studies and and this and that. And the reason that I don't go back and drink is because I don't want to drink ethanol. It's gross. I mean, it's 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 it's. Why do I want to do that to me to myself? Why do I want to make myself unhappy? Right. So ninety days come. And I um, am in pink clouds. My, I'm on a roller coaster. I'm having pink clouds and I'm coming back, pink clouds coming back down. And the further I get into being alcohol-free, all of that kind of settles down. And the clarity of my life unfolds before me. And I forgot, and I find forgiveness within myself. And because I find forgiveness in myself, I find forgiveness for my mother. I find forgiveness for my father. I find forgiveness for the neighbor's dad. He, they all did the best they could. They all did the best they could. That The man who did what he did to me had something done to him, right? Cycle. Didn't know what he's doing. 
My parents didn't have therapy. My parents didn't have medication. My parents didn't have these resources available to them that we have to us now. How can I hold a grudge against those people for what they didn't know? And when I get to that point, my ups and downs start leveling out. I become balanced, as balanced can be. There's, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Obviously, my, my story, there's a lot of stuff in here. And then I find Byron Katie. And oh, my God. What I've learned from her and through the acts that I, that I don't have to hold on to these stories anymore, that the stories that I'm telling myself about what I did or what was done to me are what's hurting me. The man who did what he did to me that happened 45 years ago, however long, it was an event and it's over. And for 40 years, I, I kept assaulting myself with that story. I kept drinking to perpetuate the story that I am unworthy of love, that I'm unhappy, that I'm miserable. I couldn't find forgiveness under the influence of alcohol. I couldn't find forgiveness in the middle of withdrawals. And all I was doing was either drinking to get drunk or drinking to satisfy the withdrawal from the week before. And this naked mind brought back, brought me to a point that where I've always wanted to be, right? I never thought I would be happy, never. I met, I met a wonderful man. We're both perfectly imperfect, but I never thought I would be happy. And I'm happy. I'm happy because I have, I have friends from the path who I will be friends with forever, forever. I, I'm, I'm training to be a coach because I want to pay this forward. If, if, if my community really only has access to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and thank you, Bill W., for doing what you did 80 something years ago, bringing the light to, to of addiction and, and showing us a resource or a way to get out of it. But there's something out there that is more than just higher powers and being powerless and the, the allergy thing. And, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on all of it. I, I just, um, I know that it wasn't right for me. And this naked mind helped me become a better person. It helped me become a better friend. It helped me become a better husband. I don't, I don't pick fights with my husband anymore maybe a couple times here and there, but I don't, I don't pick fights with my husband anymore. I don't overreact to comments or whatever. Um, with my marriage is so much better than it was because I'm not poisoning myself with alcohol. So I want to be a coach and I'm in the coaching program because I, I want others to know this freedom. Um, my sister, my middle sister, um, 40 plus years, she's three years older than me. So three years longer, crystal meth and prescription medicines and, and, and alcohol and this and that. And I put her in the August path. Um, she couldn't afford it or paid for. Um, she has data points, but she's not giving up because, because of you. And I know that she does the work, Annie. And I know that you give us a framework to, to do this. But if you hadn't done this naked mind, we probably wouldn't be here. 
my sister wouldn't be um, contacting a coach because she's still struggling. She's 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 um, finished with the path, and um, um, so now she is talking to a coach. She's not giving up. That means everything to me. And I look at my sister, and um, every hopefully you can't hear my puppy howling in the background, but. Um, my sister's done some pretty bad things. I've done some pretty bad things. And I look at her and there's nothing to forgive. Every alcohol-free day is a win in my book. And every data point is something to learn. And um, like what I learned in mindfulness, when, when you have a thought, you return to your breath. Have a thought, return to your breath. And John Kabat-Zinn says, if you have to do with that a hundred times within your 20-minute um, meditation cycle, then you do it a hundred times in your 20 minute meditation cycle. So what I tell my sister and what I tell everybody, you have a data point, you return to your path. That's all you have to do. No judgment, no shame, no guilt. It was a data point, return to the path. If the data point happened three days in a row, return to your path. There's nothing to forgive. There's nothing to forgive for what you did while you were under the influence. Because if we, because we wouldn't have done those things if we weren't under the influence. There's nothing to forgive. And I can look at myself in the mirror and say, there's nothing to forgive. And I, and I love myself more. I genuinely like myself. And we could always say, I love myself. I love myself. I genuinely like who I am. And when, I, and when I say that I'm a goddamn treasure, I'm a goddamn treasure. I have something to provide. And, and that is friendship. And that is love. And that is what I'm learning, being a coach and learning to listen. And Byron Katie, helping turn things around that you don't have to live in the misery of the stories that you're telling in your head. All the shit that you're making up, it's a lie. And there's a way to be happy. And that's my story. Oh, Bill, you're going to make such a good coach. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't be here if you didn't do all the work for me. I didn't even I didn't even research any of the any of the data that you um, that you put in the book. I trusted you from the very moment because 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 you have a program that is based on love. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and I want to and I want to be that coach and I want people to be happy. Because it's not about alcohol. It's this much alcohol and this much the stories that you're telling and this much of the shame that you have that you can get rid of and this much and this much. And it's all this other stuff that this naked mind helps you with. You don't just help me get sober. You help me live. And I'm, I went in October, saw about 20 or plus of us of the path and, and we went to Denver and we met each other and it's like we've been friends for life. I wouldn't have that without you. I'm going to be at the Byron Katie um, School for the work. And um, wait, wait, um, what? You're going in March? Yes. And so I know I'm that going you're, in March. I know you are. You, you're not the reason that I'm going, but so um, I'll tell you the story. So 
um, oh my God, I just spent this on being on Byron Katie. Um, and I said, to make money as a coach and then pay for this, or would you go? And she said, Bill, I'm jealous that it's not available to me. And by the way, Annie's going. And I'm not going because of you. I'm going, I'm not going, oh, how do I put this? I'm not going because you're going that um, if you, at where you are in your life, are still going to a Byron Katie seminar, that inspires me to do more work on myself. And I'm going for me and I'm going to be a better coach. And all I'm asking is for a hug and a selfie. <laughs> it's like, you're a, I'm, oh, we'll anyway. do no, that's so that's going to be in, if that's going to be the podcast, great. I know you're a very busy person. And, um, but if I could just have a hug and a selfie, I would be the happiest man on earth. So, but it's going to be so great to meet in person. I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. Oh, you got I'm, me so emotional, but I have to ask you the last question. I can't yes. answer it until I ask you the last question. So Bill, if you were going to go back in time to, um, gosh, your story of, of redemption and forgiveness like that just I think that's the most beautiful thing on the planet is somebody who's been hurt by another human can see see the other human as someone who's just been hurt as well I, I just like it's just so beautiful and and if you were going to go back to the bill who was so so caught in in being the victim and being in pain and in all his stories and you were going to tell him about what life is like now what would you tell him Keep doing what you're doing because you're going to make it, right? Yeah. I um, Byron K relieved me. My sobriety happened at the perfect time. Annie Grace happened to me at the perfect time. I uh, uh, I am resilient. I kept myself off the streets. I can do that. I can be a coach. I can be anything I want. So good. Mm, so good. You are my rock star. If, if, I mean, I, I used to, you know, I, you, who would you want to be left on a, a, a deserted island lift or whatever, whatever. And I kept thinking in my life, what oh, would be this person, the last person. And right now it's Annie Grace. If it's the book, it's um, this naked mind. Oh, that's so really, because it's not just about drinking. It's about me. And I get to own me again. Thank you. You're part of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on and just so much. And no, uh, you are a treasure. You're such a treasure. <laughs> such an incredible coach. I cannot wait. I can't wait. Oh, so good. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. It was an honor. Wouldn't it be great if our children never had to go through the pain and challenges that we faced in our own relationships with alcohol? That's my greatest wish for my own kids, and it's why I created the most important course that I've ever offered, How to Talk to Your Kids About Alcohol. Now, even if you've struggled with alcohol and you're not sure what to talk to your kids about it, or if you want to create a relationship with your children that's based on mutual respect, mutual trust, and open communication, if you know that this conversation might be one of the most important you'll have with your kids and it just can't wait any longer, then this course is for you. It includes lifetime access to six video modules, a bonus recorded Q&A session where I answer questions from parents live, just like you, an interactive workbook, and our private and exclusive How to Talk to Your Kids About Alcohol online community community where you can connect with others who are also navigating this important conversation. Visit talktoyourkidsaboutalcohol.com to learn more and enroll today. 
And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.